Welcome to the Doctors Debrief Podcast. I'm Dr Louise Tuckwell, a Senior Emergency Department CMO working in Southern New South Wales, and I'm also the Director of Prevocational Education and Training. This podcast has been created with the support of the New South Wales Higher Education Training Institute. It aims to look at issues relating to stresses faced by doctors and how to effectively debrief and manage these. I will also be speaking with a number of inspirational doctors to explore how they manage working in our challenging profession. I'm fortunate to have with me today, Dr. Sonia Henry. So thanks so much for joining me today, Sonia. Just wondered if you'd mind if we start off um, with you just telling us a bit about what work you're currently doing. So for the last nearly two years, I've been working as a GP around some very remote parts of Australia, mainly in Indigenous health. So I started in the Pilbara region of Western Australia, uh, and from there I went up to Broome and then back across all through the central northwest of New South Wales, through South Australia, up through the Northern Territory to Darwin, back across to Kununurra, and then back over to central New South Wales and all through, yeah, pretty much all, all through the country, a bit in Queensland. Yeah, and I've, I've really enjoyed it. And I'm a GP, but I suppose now I could say I'm a sort of I'm becoming a bit more of a rural generalist these days, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. You could sort of sing that I've been everywhere song, I think, couldn't you really? Um, <laughs> Pretty much, yes. <laughs> Actually, I do occasionally play that because I think it's sort of ironic and funny. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. Now, look, in 2017, you wrote an initially anonymous article about the medical profession, including the increased risk of suicide and stress in the workplace. And then you also amazingly wrote the book Going Under. And that's been described as a rare insight into the world of a trainee female medic that takes an unflinching look at the reality of being a doctor. Now, look, I think that you and others speaking out about these issues obviously has been really important and helpful. Um, and this podcast is actually funded by HETI, the Higher Education Training Institute, who are wanting actually to address and support the well-being of doctors, and in particular in the early years. So if you don't mind today, I was just wanting to explore some of the emotions and thought processes we have when working as doctors and how we might manage these. So I thought we might start off with fear. Now, fear can be described as the emotional response to an immediate threat. Have you found feeling fearful an issue for you when working as a doctor? Oh, most definitely. (laughs) I think my junior doctor years were almost defined by fear in in many circumstances, not always, but there are moments where you feel almost overwhelming fear. And I think, I mean, look, I have established myself as someone who speaks out and is very honest about these sort of things, so I suppose I can say that. But I, I also think I can almost definitively say that if I felt like that, everyone would have and will you know even as a an intern on your first night shift covering hospital you know the hospital I trained there was three doctors covering hospital overnight and when you're called to see a sick patient and the senior on ward is doing something else and it's a ward you're unfamiliar with and everyone's looking at you to to act and do something or even the prospect of having to call the consultant you know very late at night to talk about the patient you're not sure about it was terrible fear. I mean, not just that the patient was sick and you were going to screw it up, but also that you had to call someone who was very senior and um, hospitals aren't necessarily known for their, uh, I suppose, kindness in those situations. Some can be, but not a lot of the time. 
and that's very scary. And then as you get more senior, you face more fear, particularly working around remote Australia as a GP because often I'm the only doctor for many hundreds of kilometres and on call overnight and stuff is can be terrifying, yeah. Yeah, I I think you're absolutely correct there. I mean, I think all of us as junior doctors and even, as you go, say, ongoing in your career have felt quite fearful at times with either not quite knowing what to do or the responsibility or, you know, I said I I was actually um, working on Palm Island as the acting medical superintendent at one stage in my early years. Wow. Quite a daunting prospect. It sounds quite scary. (laughs) Thinking about that, how have you managed times when you felt fearful? I always, and I think this is probably good advice, particularly for younger doctors, if I had a sense that something was about to go wrong and that was what was driving my fear or the potential for that, I always called someone more senior than me. Um, And even now as a GP, I I think I do that potentially more than some of my colleagues in the sense that having worked so remotely and so alone, you have to ask for help, you know, be that calling like the flying doctors or the hospital, you know, in Perth or Darwin or Sydney or whatever. Um, I think a friend of mine actually who's a cardiac anaesthetist said it's very hard as a junior doctor because, or even as a doctor, I think, because there's always this fine line of don't wake me up and then why didn't you call me? So there's this kind Mm. of gap between, and I thought he summed that up really well. And I think in the end, my response to how did I deal with fear was it was always to ask for help. And I still do that. And even in situations where I probably don't need to, but if I have that instinct, I think, well, in the end, you're better off leaving the ego behind or whatever, you know, and, and just asking for help because it's it's your sort of job and it's the patient's life. So, yeah, I, I've always, I think, been good at that. Yeah, so essentially you're using that emotion and saying, well, what's this emotion telling me? It's telling me that, you know, the stakes are high here. I probably need to, yeah. to get some help rather than getting swamped by the emotion. And and I think you're yeah. right. I mean, you're never going to get it 100% right when you when you call, you know, people, but that's just part of, you know, part of life really, isn't it? But Yeah, um, and the stakes are very high in medicine. You know, we sort of, I think, like to sometimes as doctors, we casualise things with each other as this kind of like, oh, this situation, and I knew how to handle that. But in the end, the stakes are very high. And I think it's good to recognise that. Do you have sort of any tips for other doctors who are finding that this, you know, feeling fearful at work is is probably becoming sort of quite pronounced or or troublesome for them? I mean, I guess it depends on where you're working and, and, and the reasons behind that. I mean, it's quite normal, I think, to feel fearful in high-stress situations, in busy hospitals, remote areas, or just being a junior doctor. But then mm. I think also it's worth asking yourself, is your fear driven by other things? Like, do you have a nasty registrar or consultant? Are you being bullied? Do you mm. have something going on in your personal life that you're not addressing? I mean, in those circumstances, I think it's worth speaking to your friends, family, GPs, the hospital, whoever they are, administrators. But otherwise, I think it's if it's just sort of a normal amount of fear, if that makes sense, is certainly use your support networks as in your colleagues and, and don't be afraid to, to speak about how you're feeling with people that you can trust who also understand the situation that you're in. Because a lot of people who aren't doctors, I, I don't think they really understand no. what it's like. And it's not their fault. It's just by sheer virtue of the fact, unless you're in it, you simply don't ever quite manage to relate to it. 
Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. And I think, as you say, it's, you know, reaching out to, to others and understanding too, I suppose, that, you know, that you're not alone, that we all feel fearful at times. So I think it's really important. And that sort of probably segues a little bit into the next um, thing I was going to speak to. And it's really in life, you know, we can all feel overwhelmed at times that there's just too much for us to manage. But this is often quite a persistent feeling, I think, when working as a doctor. Do you feel Mm. that this feeling of being overwhelmed is an issue for doctors and in particular early in one's medical career? Yeah, I do think it's an issue and I think it's not helped by other factors that probably, and I've said this before in interviews, we all understand, I think, going into medical school and becoming a doctor that it's going to be a difficult job. I don't think anyone, particularly in Australia, goes into it thinking this is going to be easy. But then there are other things that make it more difficult for juniors training now, like the bottleneck of training positions. And particularly with COVID, I think they've held back a lot of exams and that kind of stuff. And I think that's Mm. been very difficult. So there's this sense that you're going to face the stress that is inherent in medicine anyway, just by the fact your job is going to be difficult. But then there's these other stresses that perhaps system-wide change could help. I mean, look, like I said, I'm not a politician or a policymaker, but I, I think that it's worth mentioning that, yeah, like you will feel overwhelmed and it's unfortunately not just because of the job. It's also because you're then trying to get onto a training program you're trying to pass your exams, you're trying to pay your rent, you're trying to be a normal person. <laughs> like it's, mm, there's a mm, lot happening, yeah. Mm. And do you have any particular, you know, advice or, or tips about trying to manage these times when you're actually in that space of feeling overwhelmed? I mean, it's it's difficult. I mean, the characters in my book that I ended up writing used to drink copious amounts of white wine, which I wouldn't recommend as a coping strategy. Mm. But, um, you know, a lot of doctors do turn to those kinds of escapes, I guess, which I can understand and relate to. But in the end, I think a more healthy approach is, and it's not, I hate those sort of really trite, like, oh, do yoga or go mm. for a run. Like we're doctors, we already know that. I think it's mm. really being able to have people to talk to, having a GP that you can trust, having a psychologist that you can trust, mm. you know, communicating with your consultants and registrars or whoever you're working with, colleagues, that you can trust. And communication mm. is a big part of it, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, no, no that's, that's great. Now before we move on to some other difficult issues, I thought it might be a good time just to chat a bit about how using our creativity and other talents can help us with our emotional well-being. And I'm pretty sure it's one of Hugh Mackay, his books, he's an Australian social researcher, but he says, if you want to find yourself, then create. So how have you found creativity has helped you during your career as a doctor? Uh, That's a great quote. Actually, I wasn't familiar with that, but I really like that. I've said this before in, in interviews, is that for me, I couldn't separate the two in the end, which is that I wanted to be a writer and I also was a doctor at the time. But the two are now inextricably linked for me. One that I've written about my career, I suppose, or things that have happened to me in medicine. But also I think it allowed me this sense where I could be completely myself. So when I was writing, it's when I was creating, it was just between me and the page. There was no registrar, consultant, colleague, competition, exam. It was complete honesty between me and my laptop. So I think that was a mental space that I found incredibly therapeutic. Mm. And that was with me all through my training years and is still with me now. I mean, I've just finished my second book. Like, so I think 
you know, and, and people say, how did you find the time? How did you find the time? For me, it wasn't really about the time. Without, without my writing, I don't think I would have been able to survive, if that makes sense. Like yeah. it, it's such an inherent part of who I am that I knew that I had to do it. And, and it's, uh, yeah, it's been very honest, but that's, that's the truth. It just, I just found the time because without it, it, I wasn't me. And I think as doctors, we always associate ourselves with being a doctor, but there's lots of other parts to you. And I think it's okay to acknowledge that. In fact, I think it's very important to acknowledge that. Do you have any suggestions about, you know, doctors, if they don't feel they're up to writing, you know, a book worthy of publishing or playing in a, you know, symphony orchestra, what they could actually do just to try and be creative? Lots of things. I mean, I wrote two books. It took me 11 years to get a publishing contract. Like, you can be an actor, you can enjoy sport, you can paint, you can, and it doesn't necessarily have to be about achieving a contract or achieving a, an Archibald prize or, or whatever. You can actually just allow yourself the time where you connect with your mind in a way that has nothing to do with your job. And that's very, very healthy. And I realised, you know, when my book came out and I had to do all these interviews and go on TV and all this stuff, I didn't actually enjoy really that. I found that quite stressful. And then I realised something about myself was that I like to write just for the act of writing. Whereas previously I'd been a very doctor. I was like, well, I have to get it published. And, I, and then I thought, no, no, it's actually the act of writing that is what I enjoy. And that was sort of a bit of self-awareness that I hadn't had before. Mm. I know that's wonderful and I think just getting your head into another space is is fantastic. I actually had a funny thing. I decided for our kids that we were going to get a jigsaw puzzle of a world map and it was 2,000 pieces and they started a bit and then they went off and then in the end I just got into this so much because I love maps and Mm. in the end it was like don't touch the puzzle. So, and it's just been, it's, it's a bit like for some people, it might be the, I suppose the coloring in and for other people, it's, you know, these mindfulness things, but yeah. So I'd never, I don't think ever been into jigsaw puzzles and, and it was a really interesting experience because I just love those times where I was totally focused on that and nothing else just to give yourself a mental break. So it's right. so important. Yeah. Now, another thing I thought we'd chat about, because we're all aware of like, you know, medical myths that might affect our clinical reason reasoning, and we sort of aim to avoid getting caught up in these. But I was reflecting recently, I think one of the most significant of these is that despite being intelligent, highly trained professionals, we actually at times call ourselves idiots or think that others will think we are. And I realise this might be a bit politically incorrect term, but I think it's often the term that we use. Now, what are your thoughts regarding this sort of negative judgmental self-talk that some doctors sometimes engage in? Oh, I think it happens constantly. I think it's pervasive through medicine. I mean, I think a lot of it is driven by, you know, medical training and medical school and personalities that enter medicine to begin with. But, I mean, it's not exactly a culture that constantly tells you that you're doing well. Most of the time we're being told we can do better. I mean, there are reasons behind that because, obviously, like we said before, it's high state. Mm. But, um. I think a lot of doctors suffer imposter syndrome. Um, And I actually read an article, I think it was on the train this morning, where it was sort of like imposter syndrome really is where you're actually achieving huge amounts, but you still think you're achieving almost nothing. And I read that and I was like, child, really relate to that. (laughs) I never really identified as having imposter syndrome because it sounded like one of those sort of buzz terms. And I was like, Mm. oh, yeah, whatever, like a bit like burnout. 
Mm. But then I realised, no, I think I have still do in many ways have that. And I think a lot of doctors do. I, I think part of it is that we're in a, an environment of very competitive people who are also highly intelligent. But there's also some very toxic aspects to um, medicine, I think, that also still flourish, unfortunately. And I think that it's it's better to speak about it and be aware of it. But, yes, I think it's very pervasive, that idea that we're never good enough or that we're failing when actually we're not. Mm-hmm. And, like, if someone is sort of stuck in this persistent negative self-talk, you know, do you have any advice for where they might sort of go to seek help for, for this? I mean, I guess there's the, I'm sort of in my head, I'm half being a GP and half being like back in my junior doctor days, you know, and GP me would sort of say, you need to see a psychologist, you need to see a GP. Like if these thoughts are becoming so pervasive that you're actually struggling to sleep, you're not eating very well, you're not socializing, you're not, you, you need to speak to somebody like, and, and often it's not the hospital to start. Like, it's like I said, people you trust, family, friends, and then, you know, psychologists and that kind of thing but then there's the flip side which is just when you just you have I suppose what's how would I describe this is just kind of baseline negative self-talk because I think all doctors actually do unless you're like so narcissistic that you don't but I I think that's Mm. pretty unusual in that case you have to be able to then if you're in the right headspace as you're not at the point where you need to actually seek professional help is things that are healthy like friends exercise creativity and an awareness that you are more than your job even though we're told as doctors that is all we are that is not not the case yeah no that that's that's very good and I think as you say it's it's how pervasive if it's really affecting other parts of your life probably does get to the point where you do need to you know see a GP or a psychologist or something so but I think it is a bit of a shame that that's you know uh, a big part of of what ends up happening to people at times with this you know self-criticism which isn't really um warranted now and that brings us along to another issue which i'll probably cover in a separate podcast but just the issue of doctors trying to cope with having made a mistake and which mistakes are actually an inevitable part of medical practice but i think we as doctors find it very difficult to recover, recover from these. And as a generalisation, doctors do set high standards and tend to be perfectionists. How have you found managing times when, you know, you've made a mistake? It's hard because we're very self-critical. I mean, I only made a you know, mistake at work a few weeks ago that I then felt very badly about and sort of but also I suppose it's a bit uh double-edged so there's also that you just feel bad that you've potentially done the wrong thing by the patient or whatever but then there's also the fear of oh well will this come back in some negative way professionally for me and that kind of thing I mean this particular Hmm. mistake wasn't that serious but and also then there's this sense of you've shown yourself in front of your colleagues potentially to, to not be as good as them or not be as effective as them. And then we go back to that whole idea in medicine that we're all quite competitive or, and I'm actually not that competitive, but, you know, there's this idea that we have to be on the top of our game all the time, which is almost impossible. I think in terms of obviously practically, if you've actually made a mistake that you think would have negative con- consequences professionally on the patient, whatever, you have to be upfront with the patient. You can call your indemnity insurer. Like these are sort of practical strategies to sort of, or discuss it with your superior if you're in a situation where you have a boss. But then if it's just a mistake that nothing bad has come of it and you just feel bad within yourself, again, that goes back to 
Uh, I think probably better self-care and better awareness that as a doctor you are still a person and, of course, we're going to make mistakes. You know, we've all made them. We all feel bad after them. It's just part of the course. Mm. Yeah, and I think a good point you made there was talking to your medical indemnity company. Mm. Do you have anything sort of further to say about how they can actually, you know, be helpful in lots of these sort of situations if we've got Oh, yeah. I mean, I've called them heaps of times, particularly working out in the bush, you know, you're sort of a bit, it's very isolating. But also just about lots of things I've called my indemnity. You know, I had a an example of a very young girl, you know, who was pregnant and, you know, the 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 situation was very legally and ethically questionable. I called my indemnity about that. Um, I've called them about situations where I was uncertain whether my documentation had been good enough in something that ended up going to court and they're available 24 hours. So you really need to see them as someone that you can call even if you have a very minor concern because I found with a lot of doctors, even if we have minor concerns, they can become major concerns in our head Mm. and sometimes you just need an objective third party that you can kind of at least bounce some ideas around and, and then they make you feel as if you've at least put the words in the air and gotten some, you know, helpful advice. Yeah, but I, I think doctors need to understand from a very early time in their career that they should call their indemnity insurer as much as they think they need to because they're on your side and I think that's very comforting. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think I used to think of it initially you only go to them if you're in, like, deep trouble. Yeah. When I went on, right. I realised if, if I was in a situation that I thought, look, this is a very complex situation, I'm not sure how it's going to pan out, I'm trying to do the best for the patient, but, you know, it, it's quite complex and I'm really not sure, you know, what, you know, where I'll stand depending how things turn out. And I've rung them and they've just been great, really, just, you know, giving me the advice that I need and 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 even just having sort of flagged it with them at the start, I think is a is sometimes a good thing, particularly I suppose more in the general practice setting where you've got, you know, ongoing care of people. So yeah, I think I'd be very much encouraging young doctors to look at them as a as a resource rather than a, you know, something that you just call on if if everything falls to bits. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, working as a GP and, you know, a rural generalist, do you find you now have a greater understanding of of mental health issues and in particular those facing doctors? Yes, but I suppose for different reasons than what I had before. Like I now really understand, you know, the tyranny of distance in Australia and I also now understand like true isolation, not just mentally but also physically, as in when, Mm. you know, you're in a situation where you're sort of being told by RFDS or the flying doctors that, you know, there's they've got no planes and, you know, you're on your own. And that, yeah, I think that I, I now have a much better understanding of the remoteness of Australia, which sounds um, almost silly. Like, of course, we know Australia can be very remote, but until you're there, I, I, I didn't understand that kind of lack of access and mm. lack of immediate response and also that you are suddenly relying on yourself. So I suppose I have a much deeper empathy for people, patients and doctors who live in regional or not even just remote Australia, like regional Australia. Mm. That's just from my own experience. 
yeah, like I think I've always had a particularly good understanding of mental health with doctors because I'm just that kind of person, I suppose. I mean, I write books about it. So, sort of, mm. but when I worked in the places I have, I, I have a much greater, and, and that's not a personal thing. It's just, it's a, it's a distance logistics thing, right? Mm. And, but in terms of, you know, GPs, do you think that there are some special skill sets that they have that can help other doctors? Oh, definitely. I wasn't ashamed of being a GP, but sometimes in the hospital there's this sense that unless you're becoming a specialist, as in the traditional hospital sense of specialist, like a surgeon or a, or a physician, hmm. um, that you're sort of not. Because I've read all these things about apparently medical students these days aren't that interested in general practice and that kind of thing. And even working in the cities, I realise as a GP you have this incredible access into people's lives where they will tell you things they simply will not tell anyone else and then you have a chance to make a real difference. And I'm talking about a difference before they end up on an operating table or they end up in a, like, you know, primary care I'm extremely passionate about. But when I worked, well, when I still work in remote Australia, out there the GP is everything. (laughs) Like Mm. without the GP you don't have anything and I think that GPs have this incredible ability to cross many spheres and do it very seamlessly and as a GP you can choose pretty much what it is that you want to do and what you're interested in. I mean I trained at St Vincent's, I lived in Sydney for the last you know nearly 20 years, I was a real eastern suburbs Potts Point sort of person and now I spend all of my time nearly in Deserts, um, working in pretty complex situations. And I can only do that because of my job. And it provided me with an insight into my own country that I didn't have before. And only with general practice, I think, can you do that. Mm. I mean, I sound like a real advocate for GP, but I have become one because I realise how important. And I've met some incredible GPs who just were really the young, unsung heroes. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like yeah. I'm very proud to be GP now. Yeah. Yeah, the quiet achievers. So, yeah. And, and I think um, particularly some GPs who've got a special interest in mental health um, just have an extraordinary skill set and knowledge and ability to help people. So I think that they can be a, an amazing resource for all of us and particularly doctors because they are doctors and they have all done what, you know what we all go through in our early years so so I think that's a really yeah. good resource and thinking of resources you know as as part of my sort of starting to look into some well-being for for doctors I came across a lot of resources and support services and some of them I didn't actually know existed now the medical benevolent society is is one of them that I know that you're affiliated with as well and there's others including the doctors health advisory service doctors for doctors and and more recently um the hand in hand peer support initiative you know I think it's really important that doctors are aware of where to go to for help and that there are actually some 24-hour helplines specifically for doctors do you have any comments around this or, or the Medical Benevolence Society in particular yeah so I discovered the Medical Benevolence Society when I was reading I think it was one of the like medical magazines and I was on a night shift working in a private hospital about three or four years ago and I read about this, it was almost seemed quite secretive at the time, this group that if you were struggling either emotionally, financially, or your family members were, you could ring them and you would speak to them and, and they would be able to help you. 
And what I liked about them was it was a very practical sort of assistance, as in they would link you in with a psychologist, a social worker, uh, and they would provide you financial assistance if the council thought that was reasonable and fair, which most Mm. of the time, you know, they do. Uh, And so I donated money to them every year because I, especially after publishing a book, I I came across a lot of um, associations, I guess, that were very um, active on media and looked very, uh, I guess, big and important. But in the end, I, I wasn't, I couldn't see really any tangible evidence that they were helping people on an individual basis. Mm. And so then when the, um, I got, because I was a, a donated, I got this thing that said we're looking for, for members and I joined and it's a totally not-for-profit charity that exists for doctors who are struggling and it, it's just quite amazing that there's this group of people that runs this sort of, I guess, almost, yeah, well, it's a charity that if anything you say is confidential, um, because they're all doctors, they absolutely have your back. There's 24-hour support with social workers. I sound like I'm advertising it, but I'm not because it's not for profit. Like all of our mm. meetings, no one is paid. When we're not paid, it's just on a volunteer basis. And it's, it's because they're all doctors and of all different expertise and fields and specialties, there's, there's huge amounts of empathy there. And I always, every meeting, I always think how empathetic everyone is, which is very nice to hear for doctors. And if I was struggling, I would ring the Medical Benevolence Association, which is, like I said, not not widely known, but it's been around for, I think, over 110 years or something. So it's a great and very worthwhile organisation. And it's just lovely to see that side of doctors as well, isn't it? That there's just so many, you know, the majority are actually like lovely, kind, caring people. And that's, you know, it's lovely to see that that side and that support, isn't it? So yeah, very much so. And just before we finish up, like, do you have any other advice you'd just like to give doctors early in their careers just to help with their well-being that, that we might not have covered already today? Oh, I always say this when I have medical students and registrars now. Look, I always in the end, I suppose it was a controversial opinion, but being a doctor is a very, very important job and it becomes a big part of you, but it's still a job and it's not the entirety of you. You are a person, you know, where the sum of our parts, right, like there are so many aspects to you and your soul, I suppose, be that creativity or family or friends or and I think sometimes it's just good to reground and resettle yourself to think that doctors have very high suicide rates. And I think a lot of that is driven by this absolute perfectionism and this fear to step outside the box that we're told we have to be in as doctors. Because in the end, you're a doctor, but you're a human being first. And I think that is always worth remembering. Yeah, I know that that's just, that's great, Sonia. And I think so we've said a few times there's plenty of there are numerous services to support doctors specifically and and call lines and things and it's important to um to, to you know to access those and, and make sure you've got a you know gp you're happy with and things i think they're all really important things for our well-being so thank you so much sonia for giving your time and insights today i i really appreciate that and also for your bravery and advocation for the well-being of, of all doctors so thanks so much oh no problem I also love the painting behind you it's very nice would you believe I was thinking of that earlier that's actually done by a very long-term friend of mine who I met as an intern who's um a doctor and that's part of her creativity so for those who obviously can't yeah. see beautiful paintings based in um 
South Coast, New South Wales, around Kiama with um Oh, it's where yeah. I am now. They're yeah, beautiful. it's really, so, really beautiful. Yeah, so um, a, a very creative friend of mine. So, um, it's a nice way to finish. Fantastic. All right, you take care, Sonia. All the best. Okay. Thanks, Louise. You too. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye.